In the mid-1700s, a boy was born to a Seneca woman of the Wolf Clan. The boy was given the name Otiani. When the child was born, he didn't seem any different than any other Seneca baby. But as the boy grew, it soon became apparent that he was quite different. You see, while many of the other boys were out playing with sticks and throwing black walnuts at each other, the young boy would be deep in the forest, walking and talking to himself. This made some of the people in the village laugh at the strange child. Otiani's mother was troubled by her son's behavior, so she decided to follow him one day. As she crept through the woods, her son began to speak to himself in the voice of a man. Brother, listen to what we say. There was a time when our forefathers owned this great island. The seats extended to the rising and the setting sun. The great spirit made all of the things for us. The mother was amazed at the eloquence of her boy, and she yelled out to him, Who is that I hear speaking in the woods, these great words in the forest? The boy replied, It is I, Logan the orator. The mother said, You may sound like Logan, but you are not. You are my son, Otiani. The boy came to his mother, and he told her that he liked to walk in the woods and pretend that he was Logan the orator. Many of the other boys liked to pretend they were warriors, but he said there was more honor and eloquence in being an orator. Sometimes he would practice for hours at a time. His mother asked him why he spent so much time speaking like Logan and not playing with sticks and black walnuts like the other boys. He told his mother, because I need to practice if I ever want to become a sachem. The mother smiled and took his hand and they walked back to the longhouse. The boy, Otiani, would grow up to become one of the most famous Iroquois sachems in history. But you may know him, Andrew, under a different name, Chief Red Jacket. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Iroquois History and Legends. This is Andrew. And this is Caleb, and we are live from the Iroquois History and Legends studio in downtown Canadegua. We are going to do this in one take for you all, so this is a... Uh, I really like the new place, Andrew. I mean, we got a full staff of five different sound producers. Say hi, guys. What's up? And uh, we got our own chef here on the side to give us some hors d'oeuvres while we do this. I mean, I feel like I've really hit the big time. Actually, Caleb, we're still in our garage recording like every week. Andrew, shut up. Anyway, folks, we are so glad to be back. We are really excited to be covering today's topic, which is one of the most famous Seneca men in history, known by his English name, Red Jacket. Joseph Brandt gets a lot of attention in Canada and kind of the eastern side of New York, but Red Jacket in a lot of ways was really his counterpart. He really uh, was equal in fame, uh, but completely different personality and a, just a completely different person in general. And career. And if you live anywhere in the Rochester area, odds are you know something or someplace named after Red Jacket. We've got a school district, uh, a cider mill, neighborhoods, Boats, everything. Uh, Boy Scout troops. Yeah, my Boy Scout troop actually is called Red Jacket Troop 29, and it has been since the early 1900s. And so he was an extremely famous person in his time and continues to be to this day. Andrew, Red Jacket has already made some quick appearances in past episodes, and he will continue to pop in on future episodes for at least the next uh, 30 years in our narrative. Yes, but that being said, we wanted to do a whole episode dedicated him to fill in the pieces that we've missed to give you a complete picture of the man, because honestly, the guy deserves it. So that story that you told in the beginning, Caleb, that's just total BS made up stuff, right? He didn't really practice as a kid and look up to Logan, the orator, as his like superhero, did he? That is actually a real documented story. I, I 
changed it to make it, the story flow a little bit, but the true parts of the story are he really would, as a child, go into the woods and practice talking instead of playing with the other boys. And when they'd ask him who he was, he would say, I'm Logan the Orator, who was the generation before his most famous Seneca speech, speaker. So from very early childhood, Red Jacket knew he wanted to be someone that could really influence people, not just with his strength, but with his words. And uh, Red Jacket was probably born in the year 1750. There's two places where people say that he was born. One was Cuca Lake, and there's a sign there with his mother's grave. And as Caleb mentioned, too, he was born into the Wolf Clan. The second place was Canasaraga, which, as we know it today, was Geneva, New York, or as the whites called it at the time, Seneca Castle. So as a young boy, he's growing up during the French and Indian War, and then at the eve of the American Revolution... This puts him in his mid-twenties, and already he's known as a very well-spoken young man. But at the time, Andrew, with all these battles going on, you need to be more than just well-spoken. During times of war, people want strong leadership. We see that even in American history. In times of peace, people want somebody more business-oriented, but uh, during wars, people want somebody that's tough that they know will be able to get the job done and keep their people safe. So although Red Jacket in his early 20s was high esteemed for his oratory skills, he still had something to prove. That puts us in the year 1777. This is when Barry St. Ledger has invaded from Canada and he and Joseph Brandt are gathering up different Seneca and other Iroquois peoples to make a march on Fort Stanwix. So Red Jacket is present at his village council, and corn planters there, and Joseph Brandt, and they're really trying to drum up support. But Red Jacket, being the young whippersnapper that he is, thinks that he knows better than everybody else. And he's really not convinced that the British are the side to choose with, or that we should be picking any sides. He says to his elders, you know, wouldn't it be best if we all just stay neutral? And the English and Americans can kill each other as much as they want, and then we don't have to worry about any of our blood being spilled. And this would probably put us in better position for trade and future negotiations. Those are all great points, right, Caleb? Wrong. Brant and Cornplanter instantly began calling him a coward in front of the whole village. And Andrew, I this still happens in our politics today. Somebody might bring up, uh, you know, a touchy issue on uh, race or cutting uh, minimum wage or uh, cutting welfare. And the second they do that, they say, you're a racist. You just want to take money away from minorities instead of, you know, making the argument on why uh, a certain policy might be bad for somebody. It's just so much easier to try and villainize him as a hater or a coward. And that's exactly what Cornplanter and Brandt do to him. Red Jacket vehemently stood up and informed them that he was not a coward, but he thought that his position was the correct one. But his voice was drowned out, and as we know, consensus building, the consensus was the Seneca Nation was going to go to war against the Americans. Now, Red Jacket, although he really didn't trust the British, he was always available to uh, be hired on the side to run and carry messages for them. And in fact, he was known in his time as a great long-distance runner, even by Seneca standards. And we, we know that, I mean, they just had a crazy endurance because they had been running up and down hills and glades and valleys their whole life. So they were just peak physical condition. And a lot of the British officers were so impressed with how quickly he would get their messages from one place to another that they gave him an official commissioned scarlet red jacket, just like the ones that the redcoats would wear, for him as payment. And he was really pleased... So much so that everywhere he went, he wore it. When one would wear out, he would acquire another. And so that's where the moniker came from, and people just started calling him Red Jacket. As we mentioned, the Seneca began to mobilize in 1777. As everybody's heading to Fort Stanwix, a who's who of everybody starts to gather. We mentioned Cord Planter, and Gisuguato, and Blacksnake, Cornstalk, Sangarata, John Hare of the Cayuga, Everybody is gathering up together, along with Ottawa, Mississaugas, Hurons, Chippewas, and other Algonquins. And here, Red Jacket kind of finds himself along for the ride. Everybody else is heading up to Irondequoit Bay to meet up, and eventually he gets there and he's like, what am I even doing here? Just all his other friends agged him on to tag along. 
But even though he's here, he's still really suspicious, thinking that the British just want to use them as pawns, as a disposable fighting force. And while this huge mass of Indian warriors is being gathered, they are constantly being assured by the British leadership that they just want them basically for scouting and for uh, psychological warfare, and that they won't actually have to risk any of their lives. That's what the commissioned soldiers are for. You guys just come along and, you know, just help us through the woods so that we can get there to fight the Americans. So as they travel from Irondequoit to Oswego, some of them are already complaining to the British officers saying, hey, you know, you guys haven't really given us any good pay so far. There's not really any trade goods. And Brant was really upset at the British, but he really wanted to make sure that nobody left. So they started making promises that the king is rich and he'll supply us with all the weapons and everything we ever need. Red Jacket stood up and told his friends, they're all cheats. They're just trying to deceive you. And if you go, you're going to find out that we've all been deluded. And some of his fellow friends said, you've got the mind of a woman. And you are not fit to go to war. So it just seems like poor Red Jacket is uh, <laughs> can't win. Throughout his life, he will be constantly be called a coward. No matter what he does, <laughs> even when he's right. At the Battle of Oriskany, Andrew, uh, General Herkimer was bringing his militia up to reinforce Fort Stanwix. The British encouraged this huge group of Indian fighters to ambush them in the ravine. He said, hey, here's a great opportunity for you guys to get a bunch of good trade goods and with literally no risk of injury to yourselves. You see, uh, Herkimer's going to be walking through this ravine. How about you guys just set up on one side? And when he walks through, you guys just attack him. We'll pay you for the scalps. You can get all the trade goods, you know, loot the bodies or whatever. This is a this will be a great opportunity for you. The problem is the Americans had Iroquois Oneida scouts leading the way, and Joseph Brandt makes the decision to kill them all before they can warn the Americans. And then when Herkimer's troops walk in, a bloody battle ensues. And right off the bat, the Seneca warriors really get the best of Herkimer. Herkimer gets seriously wounded. Many men get killed immediately, and it's looking like it's going to be a horrible rout. The British think that the battle was a complete victory. But Herkimer's militia were tougher than a lot of other militia. They got swanked pretty bad. They retreated down into the ravine, which is one of the worst things you can do. And then, all of a sudden, they make this heroic push straight up the ravine and drive the Seneca back. And they end up killing hundreds of them. So everyone thinking this was going to be an easy victory, all of a sudden, hundreds of Seneca warriors, the cream of the crop of this war party, are killed and injured. And Red Jacket is standing there amongst the trees, seeing friends all around him take musket balls and bayonet thrusts, people bleeding and crawling on the ground. And this does something to him psychologically. He gets shell shock and he grabs the rest of his men and they walk all the way back. And I don't think I told you so even came to his mind. I just think he was probably overcome with the mourning and the loss of this great defeat to him and his family. Allegedly, after they returned home, and who knows whether this was really said or not, but Littlebeard, one of the leaders from the village at Geneseo, buried his head into a blanket and started weeping uncontrollably about what had happened at Oriskany. And he said, Red Jacket was in favor of peace, and how much better had it been if we had just listened to his advice? The Battle of Oriskany would be the first time in hundreds of years that the uh, Iroquois nations would openly take up arms against each other. That's why the Battle of Oriskany is known amongst the Haudenosaunee as the place of great sadness, because it's where the covenant chain was truly broken for the first time. So let's fast forward two years later. In 1779, General Sullivan starts marching up into the heart of Iroquois land, and specifically... After the Battle of Newtown, he heads for the Seneca and Cayuga villages and burns almost all of them. Red Jacket's present at the initial battle, and he falls back with the rest of the forces. Finally, when they come to Canada Saga, known as Seneca Castle or Geneva today, 
Red Jacket and a friend of his are going out in the woods to try and do some reconnaissance to see if they can maybe snipe some of the Americans as they're trying to burn the town. As Red Jacket's coming along, he sees a cow just sitting outside the American camp. Well, you know, killing cattle is, you know, what you want to do against an army to try and slow them down. So he takes his hatchet out and kills the cow and then proceeds to smear his body with blood and walk back into the camp. Allegedly, allegedly, Red Jacket begins bragging to everyone that he just killed an American and covered himself in blood. Um, that is until the buddy standing right next to him couldn't control his laughter and said that, yeah, but the dead American had four legs. Joseph Brandt then shows up and begins berating Red Jacket Again, calls him a coward, and then whenever he talks about Red Jacket in the future, usually in unfavorable terms, he doesn't call him Red Jacket. He doesn't call him by his Seneca name. He calls him the Cow Killer. Also during this time, as Sullivan is coming up and burning all of these villages, Red Jacket implores the people to try and send emissaries to the Americans to try and get a peace. Yeah, Brant is there at the same time, like Andrew said, and Brant is trying to drum up support for them to attack Sullivan's force as they're marching through. And I imagine due to what happened a couple years earlier at Oriskany, this is what encouraged the Seneca to retreat. And I had always wondered why they retreated before, you know, you put two and two together that this was still fresh in their mind, the battle at Oriskany. It was only, uh, what, two years prior, and they didn't want it to happen again. So if you want to hear what happened throughout the rest of the American Revolution, please go back and listen to our nine-part series on the Iroquois and the American Revolution. But now we're going to fast forward to the end of the war. A short time after hostilities ended, Red Jacket was elevated by the clan mothers to the office of a sachem. Now, maybe you guys haven't been paying attention, but what is a sachem, Caleb? A sachem is one of the most, I would call it the most honorable uh, leadership positions amongst the Iroquois, because there's only 50 of them throughout the whole Six Nations. And they are appointed by the clan mothers, and they have the responsibility of being orators, being at treaties, and they meet for the central council fire every year to discuss the path that the entire Six Nations take into the future. And I believe that there are eight sachems for the Seneca. Is that right? Because the Seneca have eight clans. So he would be the sachem of the wolf clan. And uh, a sachem was very different than a chief or even a war chief because uh, this tied into their checks and balances process of government where you have the clan mothers would appoint a war chief and the clan mothers would also appoint the sachem and the sachem was more of like a government legislator or an overseer and then you would appoint a general a war chief to just handle military matters. So shortly after this time, Thomas Morris shows up, and we had mentioned him briefly in the Treaty of Canandaigua, and we kind of left him hanging as something to deal with down the road. Thomas Morris was the son of Robert Morris. He's known to history as the financier of the American Revolution. He signed the Declaration of Independence, and he was huge into land speculation. And so he sends his son to go live among the Senecas with the hope that after identifying and learning their language, that they'll trust his son enough to sell them most of their land. Let's see how that works out for him. So in 1790, about 2,000 different Seneca people gathered together where Thomas Morris is to have an adoption ceremony to uh, become a member of the Seneca Nation. But the celebration kind of gets out of hand really quick. There's a lot of intoxicating beverages. Men start to stand up and say things. And an Oneida man stands up and starts bragging about how they fought with the Americans in the late war. And some Seneca people stand up and start bragging about how many Oneidas they killed and how many scalps they have at home. And you could see how the Confederacy is just now starting to reconcile through this war. You could see how this would cause some problems. And soon people are drawing weapons at each other. And then... A big, tall, gray guy comes out of the crowd, takes out his tomahawk, and he bashes it as loud as he can into the central war post. And he says, quote, You are all a parcel of boys. When you've attained my age and performed warlike deeds that I have performed, then you can boast at what you've done, but not until then. He then knocked over the post and he said, Party's over, everybody. Don't you hate it when an old-timer comes in and says, Back in my day, we didn't kill each other. <laughs> 
1792, as we had mentioned in a previous episode, Red Jacket goes to Philadelphia, which at the time was the American capital, and he goes with Corn Planter and some other uh, Seneca dignitaries. George Washington greets the delegation really warmly, and Red Jacket is there, and he wins the crowd over. He gives numerous toasts and speeches, and he starts giving accolades to President Washington and was so pleased to hear that the president wanted to hammer out a peace deal and stop all these dubious land deals. George Washington, for his part, gives the ambassadors a pure white wampum belt to symbolize his desire for peace. And then he is so impressed by Red Jacket that he calls his local silversmith and puts an order in for something for Red Jacket. What was that, Caleb? It was a medal that showed Red Jacket and Washington both shaking hands and acknowledging dual respect for one another. Uh, one thing, though, I have a question for you, Andrew. You said it was solid silver. I spoke a year ago to one of the historians at the Ontario County Historical Society, and he told me that it was pewter. What a cheap bastard Washington was. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he was wrong. It would be a much nicer gift if it was solid silver. But. Regardless, I guess it's the thought that counts. But the, the medal still exists today. It was in uh, Red Jacket's family for numerous years, but now it's held by a museum. Now, Andrew, I believe it, this was the same trip to Philadelphia where Washington had beautiful sets of handmade clothes commissioned for Red Jacket and the other chiefs that were there. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, but a, a kind of a comedic thing happens, though, when he has these clothes made. Everybody gets them and everybody's happy with them. But Red Jacket says, these clothes are really nice, but you see, these are war chiefs here and I'm a sachem. So I should really have more uh, diplomatic garb made. So they say... Okay, we understand. So they commissioned him another set of clothes. And then he said, well, these are nice too, but if you think about it, I am the sachem, but I also am a war chief too, and I fought in a lot of wars, so I should really have, you know, more of a military uh, type garb as well. Uh, you know, don't you think I should have like a colonial military dress made? And they said... Okay, uh, I'll do that again. So Red Jacket ends up getting three beautiful sets of clothes <laughs> instead of just one. And I can just picture everybody being like, don't offend him, just give him what he wants. Anyway, you'll also remember in our previous episode that Red Jacket and Corn Planter go out west to try and convince the Western Confederacy that is at this time waging a huge war against the United States to sue for peace. Red Jacket stands up and gives a five-hour oration making the case for peace. It's said that his words were eloquent and beautiful, but it didn't persuade anybody one bit. Corn Planter and Red Jacket come back to Pennsylvania to tell George Washington that they failed in their mission, but Washington congratulated them on their efforts and said he was very pleased at their sincere desire for peace. Meanwhile, back at home, there's these two dudes named Oliver Phelps and Nathaniel Gorham, and they have obtained preemption rights to Iroquois land. Now, Caleb, for people that did not listen last time, what the heck does that mean, preemption rights? People were literally bidding on the rights to land of the Seneca before it was even available for sale. And this was kind of a, a government's way of keeping an eye on who would be buying the land because they didn't want the Iroquois to say, okay, we'll sell land, and then you'd have... 500 different people buying different parcels and then the government would have to sort out the mess. So the government allowed people to bid on these rights. That way, when if the Iroquois decided to sell their land, it would be owned by one company and then that company could then parcel it off and it would all be documented and the government could be sure to get their taxes off it. But for the Seneca Nation, that would not help them at all because then they're forced to only sell to one person and they can't get a good price off it. Also, the Iroquois hear about all these different businesses buying their land, bidding on their land, and they are under the impression that their land is just being sold right out from under them. And they, they don't understand, you know, honestly, it's kind of confusing for us to even understand preemptive sales for something that's not for sale. Uh, so I can just imagine how much more confusing it would be for them. So Red Jacket was rather irate at this. Then we fast forward to 1794 in the Treaty of Canandaigua. That's where 
almost all of the members of the Six Nations, aside from some of the Mohawk we know, come to Canandaigua and they ratify a huge treaty with the United States. And Red Jacket is one of the principal leaders that speaks at this conference. Uh, Savary is a Quaker leader, and he takes detailed notes of the whole proceedings, and he writes down details about everybody and everything, and it gives us a good glimpse into the picture of what people were like. He says, Red Jacket's wife was present with their five children, and they were the best behaved and prettiest Indian children he had ever met with. And if you ever want to read his notes, it just talks about everything from their manners, of their dress, to how the speeches went, to how... Uh, they built their shanties while they were camping out and how many deer they get. It's just really detailed. While all these talks are going on, the clan mothers specifically approach Red Jacket and ask him to be their voice to speak in the council. So in reality, the clan mothers are saying what needs to be done, but Red Jacket is able to put the window dressing on and get the clan mother's point across because he's known as such a great speaker. So when he gets up and starts telling everybody that the clan mothers are really concerned, that the whites are surrounding them, and they're going to squeeze them all from their lands, and this hurts the clan mothers' hearts so much. And, you know, he's just tugging at the heartstrings. See these little old women over here? You've literally broken their hearts at the way you're treating them. And Red Jacket makes a plea to return their stolen lands. He also says that the clan mothers are really upset with Jemima Wilkinson. She's the uh, eccentric person I mentioned before, Caleb, that uh, thought that she was Jesus reincarnated in female form. Yeah, look her up. Total nutcase. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you probably just offended somebody. Does she have it? Is there... No, because her followers aren't around anymore because they believed in total abstinence, so they all died out. Ah, well, so she's fair game. Yes. <laughs> so I can make fun of her religious beliefs. There's nobody left to be offended. Anyway. Oh, just you watch. Somebody will. <laughs> anyway, Jemima Wilkinson tells the clan mothers that they need to repent for all their sins. And the clan mothers, through Red Jacket, bark back saying, yeah, it's the whites that need to repent just as much as we do. So don't give us any holier than thou thing. While Thomas Morris is here at this gathering, he says, quote, talking about Red Jacket, he was the most graceful public speaker I've ever known. His manner was the most dignified and easy. He was fluent and at times witty and sarcastic. And he was quick and ready at a reply. Unquote. At the time during the talks with Timothy Pickering for the treaty, Pickering became so frustrated that he would just lose his temper. And Red Jacket loved it. Like, he liked to press his buttons because it would make him look like a total pushover and, uh, you know, just a bozo. Well, as soon as he'd done, Red Jacket would then continue on his oration and be acting like uh, nothing happened and he was in complete control of his emotions. In uh, presidential debates, you could... The public love to see somebody that can keep their cool under uh, a stressful situation. And Red Jacket just had the reputation for really dominating in public speaking. It was, I kind of picture him being like a Jedi amongst the weak-minded. You know? <laughs> Through uh, Red Jacket's bargaining, he's able to get Pickering to increase the yearly stipend from $1,000 a year to $4,500 a year. Mm -hmm. So That's pretty good yeah, increase. Pretty good, pretty good increase. Uh, the terms were agreed to and signed on November 11th, 1774, as we mentioned ad nauseum in our previous episode. So Treaty of Canandaigua was over, but now we're going to get into some new stuff that we haven't covered before. And Caleb, let's talk about the Treaty of Big Tree and let's see what this little, um, can I call him a weasel? Can I call him a snake, Robert Morris? Or is, is he an okay guy? I, I think the jury's out on it. I, I think like a lot of people, there are some things that that you can uh, admire of people. I think that he didn't have the Seneca's best interest at heart, so I guess in that case we can call him a weasel. He had his best interest at heart. But we all do, I think, have us or our people's best interest in heart. So let's talk about the Treaty of Big Tree. In our last episode, Andrew kind of mentioned uh, briefly uh, here that Robert Morris had sent his son Thomas Morris to befriend the Seneca. Robert Morris had been speculating and working with the Holland Company, and he and his associates had been doing backroom deals to acquire these said preemptive rights to Seneca land, much like the Phelps and Gorham purchase in 1788, 
which acquired the Iroquois land from Geneva all the way to the Genesee River and from Lake Ontario all the way down to Pennsylvania, just an enormous tract of land. Morris had his eyes on the land west of the Genesee River all the way to Buffalo. Robert had sent his son Thomas and he lived amongst the Seneca and he did everything he could to befriend them. And whenever the Seneca leaders came to Philadelphia, Robert Morris would trek them down and he would host them in his house and give them small gifts. And he'd say, hey, how's my uh, son Thomas doing with you guys? Are you guys getting along real well? Great. Here, have some drinks, have some food. And so for years, Robert and Thomas Morris courted the Seneca, trying to get them to just have a council where they could talk about land sales because they couldn't even get people together to even acknowledge land sales. And several times Thomas brought this up with Red Jacket and the other leaders, and they would just instantly say, no, thanks. We're not interested. Uh, what else do you want to talk about? Okay, nothing else. Okay, I'll see you later. The Seneca had lost roughly half of their domain in the Phelps and Gorin purchase. So they were committed to not lose any more. After several years of persuading, the Seneca finally agreed to a council where they would hear an offer to discuss it, to Red Jacket's dismay. The council was to be held near the giant oak tree on the Genesee River. Isn't it funny that you can be like, hey, let's meet at the giant oak tree, and everybody just knows where that is? This oak tree was so large that everyone knew it, and the area was simply known as Big Tree. And so the Treaty of Big Tree began on August in 1797. Now, much like the Treaty of Canandaigua, the United States government, they weren't particularly concerned about who was buying the preemptive rights, but they wanted to make sure that nothing was being pulled over on the Seneca. Anything that was done had to be open, on the books, with everybody in agreement. So they made sure that they had all their Indian commissioners there as a third party to make sure that uh, these New York and Massachusetts and these, these European companies that were trying to get these rights weren't going to get everybody drunk and say, here, we had uh, this five-year-old kid put his mark on this, so it, it's good to go. So they get together, and the leader of the ceremonies lights the council fire. Remember that. It's going to be important. Once the council fire was lit, Thomas Morris opened with a long speech. It doesn't say that it was a good speech. It just said it was a long speech. Uh, I read most of it, Andrew. Here's the gist of it, though. Hey, guys, my dad wants to buy your land. I know you need a lot of land for hunting and fishing, and I know you need trade goods because you've had some hard years after the war. So why don't you sell all the land other than your villages and the land around your villages, and we will pay you $100,000 in cash and trade goods which is about $2 million in today's money, Andrew. And we would also give you and your descendants the ability to hunt and fish the land forever. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just throwing that in there because once a settler puts their farmstead up, I don't think that they want any Indians coming on and uh, hunting the deer around their house. That, that's just my personal opinion, but I digress. Continue, Caleb. <laughs> also, you know, uh, if you think about... What happens as soon as you get 100,000 white settlers in? They're basically going to kill everything, <laughs> every wild animal and eat it themselves. Uh, they didn't do any sort of wildlife management like we do today. So, so yes, you can see how this doesn't sound like a very good deal for the people thinking long terms. Once the speech was over, the Seneca leaders huddled around each other. I don't know how long, but I picture it being about 15 seconds. And then they gave Morris the answer. And the answer was... No, <laughs> the answer was no. Morris was amazed and angry at how fast they gave the answer because he was expecting them to at least talk about it, go back to the clan mothers, but it was just instantly. They, they gathered around and then they said, no, thanks. He pleaded with them and he said, guys, this is a big decision. Maybe you should not be so fast to say no. So they said, you're right. So they all gathered around together for about five minutes and then the jury came out of the room and they said, yeah, the answer is still no. Speeches then proceeded from uh, big names like Farmer's Brother, Corn Planter, Little Billy, Little Beard, and Red Jacket. And when they were done with the speech, Morris asked them, what's the problem? Did we not offer enough money? Do you need more trade goods? And Red Jacket replied, 
we don't want to lose our land for any price. Morris then asked them, uh, what's the point of having land if you don't have any money or trade goods? And I think this points out just how much division there is between the two cultures, the two mindsets of what's important. To Morris, land and money are what you need, but to the Seneca and the other members of the Six Nations, they think, well, land is all you need. And Red Jacket's reply, and I have the exact quote, will really show you how they look at their land. Quote, The knowledge of ownership is everything to us. It raises our own esteem. It creates in our bosom a proud feeling which elevates us as a nation. Observe the difference between the esteem in which the Seneca and the Oneida are held. We are courted, while the Oneida are considered a degraded people, fit only to make brooms and baskets. Why this difference? Because the Seneca are known as proprietors of a broad vast of land, while the Oneidas are cooped up in a narrow space. End quote. He's got a good point there. Red Jacket's got a lot of good points. After saying this, someone then stood up from the crowd, and guess what he said, Andrew? Did they call Red Jacket a coward again? Yeah, they did. They said, Red Jacket's a coward. He's too afraid to sell his land. It's like, that's the oldest trick in the book, but it only works with little kids and uh, people that can be bullied. Uh, so he's a coward. That's why he doesn't want to sell this land. Red Jacket looked the guy straight in the eyes, and he said, Assure me that you can create lands like these, as he moved his hands, showing the land in which they lived. The Great Spirit has made these lands for us. If you can give us lands like them in return, I will be brave. Until then, I am a coward, and I dare not sell these lands. And if I can again put my opinion into here, and we try to stay away from personal opinions when we're discussing history, but I live in Canandaigua, Caleb, and Red Jacket is right. There is no place like the Finger Lakes and Letchworth and the rivers around here. It's, it's absolutely beautiful, and it's a wonderful place for nature. The entire environment is just beautiful, especially in the summer. And there's a reason why the Six Nations lived in this stretch of what we now know as New York, because it was so bountiful. The soil is so good here. The animals are plentiful. It has plenty of rivers. You have Lake Ontario to the north, so you have an unlimited supply of fish that would run down the streams. You would have unlimited supply of deer. If you move somewhere else, you might not have these things. It's not like this thousand square miles of land could just be replaced with another huge trek of land west. They understood. And also, it's, it's not just the land. It's the nostalgic and the sentimental value, knowing that your family and your ancestors have been here this long and knowing that you won't be able to use it like your ancestors have. So what happens next? Well, after hearing this, the, the agents of the Holland Company begin to see the writing on the wall, and they all start whispering and grumbling that Morris has screwed this thing up. We thought that we were going to get a deal here, and Morris has obviously done a bad job. This, this uh, council is just falling apart. Red Jacket told Morris that if they really wanted some land, here's what we can do for you. We've got some small land rights down in northern Pennsylvania, and we'll sell them to you for a dollar an acre. <laughs> Morris instantly, like, like in the past with Timothy Pickering, he just gets so angry. And he says, if that's all you want to sell, then you might as well just go home right now. At which point Red Jacket immediately comes over, snuffs the fire out and says, You've now come to the point in which I wish to bring you. You told us at the beginning of your speech that if we did not agree to sell our lands, we would still be friends. So here, Mr. Morris, he walks over, he shook his hand, the council fire was out, and Red Jacket said, let's go home. Well, well done, Red Jacket. Looks like he solved that problem. There's no possible way that Morris can weasel his way back into this, right? It sounds like it's a done deal at this point, right? The council fire's out. Everybody can see that Red Jacket got the best of the argument. He made some good points. Uh, Morris lost his temper and looked like a bozo. People begin to dance around and party, and people begin to point fingers at Morris and make fun of him and call him a failure. And that was the night. 
But what happened the next day? Well, the day after the council, Farmer's brother, who was another prominent Seneca chief, came to check on Morris. Because you got to remember, Morris has been living amongst them for years. And he told him he was sorry that the people had made fun of him. Because even though Morris failed in the treaty, at the end of it, when they all got drunk in a rate, people were pushing him and talking talking bad about him and throwing stuff at him. So Farmer's brother felt bad that Morris, who had been a friend to them, had to experience that. Morris told him, don't worry about choosing to keep your land. You guys have the right to refuse or sell your land if you want. But it did hurt my feelings when everyone got drunk and started making fun of me because I have spent a lot of time and money befriending you guys and with Whenever you were in Canandaigua, you guys could come to my house and I would house you and feed you. And whenever any of you were in Philadelphia, would not my father be hospitable to you and do the same things? And Farmer's brother acknowledged that all that was true. And so he apologized again. And then Morris pointed out something that would change history. Morris pointed out something that he had noticed with Iroquois culture, and I use the word, their constitution. Well, that's the word they use too, but yes, continue. And he points out the fact that Red Jacket was the one that put out the fire at the council fire. And you would think to yourself, well, what the heck does that have to do with anything? So Farmer's brother then thinks about it, and Morris says, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought only the person that kindles the council fire can put it out. And he says, that's true. And he said, well, if that's true, and all of the Six Nations, that's how they run their council fires, then wouldn't that mean that this council has not ended and it's just been a break? Farmer's brother says, that's true. So Morris and Farmer's brother then go and speak to the clan mothers, since they were the real authority amongst the Seneca. The clan mothers had the power and authority to overrule Sachem's decision. And if the chiefs and the Sachems went directly against the wills of the people, the clan mothers could then step in and basically be the new Sachems. So the council fire was relit to give more discussion to this. And Morris gave gifts and trade goods to the clan mothers. Tried to grease the wheels to get the discussion going again. Yeah. And he told them that so much more would be given if the land was just sold. And he told them, you don't have to make the decision right now, but think about it. Take hours, take days, take what you need, and give me your decision. The clan mothers then, after thinking about it, asked Corn Planter to be their spokesperson, much like uh, what we talked about just a little while ago, how they asked Red Jacket in the past to be their voice. They have now overstepped Red Jacket and they've given Corn Planter the authority to be the spokesman at the council. And Corn Planter steps up in front of everybody. He says, you know what? This council fire was put out prematurely. And he says, good news, Morris. We've agreed to sell the land for $100,000. And that's what, Caleb, about $2 million yeah, in today's money? Just under $2 million. And then Morris comes up with a great suggestion since, you know, he didn't actually have $100,000 worth of stuff on him. He suggested to the Indians that they put the money in a bank. Now, in Iroquois culture, killed, there was a bank in every village, right? <laughs> Not that I know of. <laughs> so they had no idea what Morris was suggesting when he said, put your money in a bank. And he explained it to him this way because we have the dialogue between them. He said, well, if you put money in a bank, it's a lot like putting seeds into the ground. You can put a little bit into the ground, and if you wait long enough, it can grow into more money. And the clan mothers humorously replied, Andrew, uh, what kind of crop will we get if we let it grow? Because they don't even think about money the way that... Yeah, what can they use it for? Yeah. They need trade goods or they need food. That's what people need. They don't need... Numbers written on an account spreadsheet down in Philadelphia. <laughs> so all of this happened with Red Jacket being forced to the back of the crowd and told to shut up. When it came time to sign the treaty, Red Jacket signed. And for years, a lot of people have, have wondered, like, he fought so hard against this. Why the heck would he sign the treaty? Same thing with the Treaty of Canandaigua. 
He was uh, basically in opposition to that treaty as well, but he signed. And a lot of people speculated that Red Jacket was really a traitor at heart. He didn't care anything about the Seneca. He was just on the, the white man's payroll. And so, you know, he would talk, but he couldn't walk the walk type of thing. But if you remember, that's not how Iroquois culture works at council meetings. Everybody discusses it, and eventually everybody comes to a consensus. And even if you were vehemently opposed to whatever's happening, you acquiesce and allow the majority to carry the day. That's why it was... That's why this system of government is a, I guess there's no real way to define it by our terms, but it was both a Republican-style system and a Democratic-style system where everybody had a say, but at the end of the day, you got to go along with the majority. And if Red Jacket refused to sign and go along with this treaty, he would basically be admitting to step down as a sachem. But by signing the treaty, he is then following the orders of the clan mothers and the people, and therefore he is still the sachem. So at the end of the day, the Seneca sign away their rights to all territory west of the Genesee River, except for 10 smaller treks of land around their villages. Now, today we would still say that, you know, some of these tracts are rather large in comparison to what the Seneca hold today. But we're going to see that this does not stop the desire for more land sales to happen in the future. And Red Jacket's going to have to fight against this his entire life. Also, if you think about it this way, say each Seneca family still has 10,000 acres apiece. To a white family, that would be a huge asset to farm and to get wood off of and hunt. But to the Seneca who have a completely different way of life where they don't farm the same way we farm, they will literally keep a whole area of land for hunting deer and then they'll leave for 10 months. And then when they come back, the deer have all repopulated the area. That worked. But now if you have your whole village on 10,000 acres, you are never going to be able to produce the same amount of wildlife or even farm quality for growing the three sisters to support the entire village. Because when a village would run out of nutrients in the soil, they would just pack up and move the village a few miles away to a better place. And then after a few decades, they would return to the old spot. So you can't do that anymore. And after this treaty, some other problems arise. Cornplanter and Red Jacket have been getting along for the last few years, but this treaty really causes them to have a big falling out. On top of that, something else crazy happens, which we'll talk about at another time. But Cornplanter's half-brother, a guy named Handsome Lake, claims to have these visions from the Great Spirit. And, for lack of a better word, starts a whole new religion. And Handsome Lake becomes known as a, a huge prophet among his people. And maybe, possibly, I, I don't want to say it, but... It's possible that Hanson Lake and Cornplanter didn't like Red Jacket, so they could have, you know, accused him of witchcraft and tried to get him kicked out. So Red Jacket gets put on trial in Buffalo, and he's called forward to defend himself. Red Jacket being Red Jacket, he's able to get up, give a wonderful speech, win the people over. He's unilaterally acquitted. And if you go to our Facebook page, we have a famous painting of the alleged trial there. In the years that follow, there's a population explosion. Not by the members of the Iroquois nations. Thousands of settlers start moving into central and western New York. And all these abandoned villages are soon totally reoccupied by white settlers. If you were to pick a place to move to, Caleb, wouldn't you start to set down where there's already a nucleus of cleared trees and beautiful brooks? And so if you go through each village around here, you'll see a little placard that says such and such a town founded in 1797 or 1794 or something like that. But in reality, all these towns around here are really much older than the present day villages. It's so hard to appreciate how difficult it was to clear pasture land for farming because cutting down huge trees is hard enough. But then if you remember those huge trees root systems are in the ground, 
how much work would you have to do to remove them to put a, a cornfield in or a pasture for your cows? So all these old Seneca towns were the prime cream of the crop for settlers. So I'm just going to list a few just in Caleb and mine area. So if you're from the area, you'll know all these places. Geneseo, Avon, Lima, Bloomfield, Honeyway Falls, Canandaigua, Geneva, Buffalo, Syracuse, and literally dozens more. They are all built on ancient Haudenosaunee villages. And some of them retain the original name and some of them have been given uh, more European names. Red Jacket saw this. We can kind of think of our childhood home being, you know, lived in by somebody else or torn down. And we can kind of see how this must have felt for him to see this. There's a biography written of Red Jacket in the mid-1800s. And in it, it tells a story where Red Jacket decides he's going to use the part of the treaty which stated that he could continue to hunt in the Genesee Valley. So he walks to the Genesee Valley, and this kind of really brings home for me because Andrew and I, we hunt in the Genesee Valley. We do, yes. And he walks to a place where he hunted as a child, and there's a fence pinned all the way around of cattle. So he walks through the woods to another spot, and there's a house there, and all the trees are cut down. And then he says, I'm going to go to this really remote spot that I know in the Genesee Valley. And he goes through the woods, and even in the middle of the woods, there's a a fence put up, and he just cries and goes home. We have another place that we hunt. Our great-grandfather had hunted there, and then our father hunted there, and we had hunted there. And recently, a couple years ago, we were told that we couldn't hunt there anymore. And throughout my family, everyone was just depressed about it. We've been hunting there since our great-grandfather's time, and now we can't. So think about how Red Jack would feel... His 20th great-grandfather hunted these lands, and now he can't do it anymore. All right, everyone, that's where we're going to leave things with Red Jacket today. But don't worry, there's still a lot more of his life, and he'll still be fighting hard for his people for years to come. So please join us for our next episode on The Life of Red Jacket, Part 2.